when we first started dreaming about the retreat, the uh, staff and then the leadership team that we put together, we started thinking of, what are the words that describe how we feel about our church? This is our church. Well, how do we feel about it? And that's where we came up with these ideas of refreshed. We enjoy what God is doing. Connected, we're working really hard to connect more and more. And purposed, we have a reason for existing. And so that's where those words came from. So I agree. Thank you, Ryan, for that. And think hard about uh, coming on to retreat. We're going to have a great time. It's one of the few times in the history of our church that the church will be closed that day because we're all going to be on a retreat. So think about being there. Okay, when I... Um, um, well, before we get into the text, let's stop and pray. I have a couple things I want to pray for. Father, um, I would like to lift up to you again, Lord, uh, Father Michael Glenn at Our Lady of Peace, Lord, the, the uh, brain surgery that he had and... Uh, I'm so grateful that he's doing so well, and I know he's going to get the biopsy results pretty soon here, Lord. I pray that you would encourage him and strengthen him during this time. And I pray, Father, that you would be gracious to that faith community and let those results be very favorable toward him. But in the meantime, thank you for his his sense of humor and his love for his people. Uh, Strengthen him, Father. And Lord, I pray for our own people in our church that are struggling. Lord, I I know a few, but you know all of them. You know the sicknesses, you know the hurts, you know the people that are, have been diagnosed with things that are not very pleasant. Lord, you know the, uh, the brokenness, the pain. Lord, you know the disappointments. You know all those things. And so I continue to ask, Father, we do as a church, that you would protect us, watch over us, and bless us. And Lord, I uh, continue to pray for our country this year as we are um, going to be choosing a president I pray, Lord, that uh, you would choose the person that you want. But most importantly, more than ever before, I pray that you would draw our gaze back to you, perhaps some that have wandered away, those that don't even know you, that this might be somehow an opportunity for them to learn about your goodness. So show yourself strong and gracious. Father, reveal who you are as a loving God to these people. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, when I'm out and about having coffee and just talking to all of you, I I hear all kinds of things um, which intrigue me. One of them is, for example, uh, what's happened to my country? Where's it gone? I admit to you that it feels to me very different than it was when I was a little boy. It's a very different country, and it's uh, changing all the time. I I think some for the good and maybe some not for the good. Uh, Sometimes when we talk about elections, people laugh and joke and pull their hair out and some people say, I've heard some people say, is this the best we have to offer? And uh, some people are frustrated over what's happening. I get that. Um, some of the older people are a little nervous about things. Well, what about the good old days, especially when we look at our finances and our economics? And does the world around us, when we look at it, does it frighten you somewhat? Does it make you feel a little nervous, a little insecure? I mean, things are changing constantly, aren't they? In our county, we've talked as elders about What does a church, I'm convinced a healthy church going forward is going to be one that's agile, one that can flex and adjust. So one of the questions I get when we kind of make a decision, are we responding to culture? I say, absolutely, we are. And we should. We should. The history of God's people, this entire book, is God stepping in where culture is first and bringing about redemption. So he meets people where they are and the mess that they're in, and then he starts the process of bringing about redemption, changing things. So, of course, we should react and respond to culture. 
We should be in dialogue with culture, absolutely. So I know it's very popular in the church for a long time to say, you know, we, should, we shouldn't respond to culture and react to culture. I have a very different perspective. I think we should be very fluid, flexible, agile. And when culture brings us something that we don't agree with, we say we don't agree. And when they bring us something we hadn't thought of that's good, we should say, excellent, we like it, let's do it better. That's what we should do as a church. Does that make you nervous? All that's going on around us? Things are changing constantly. I was in, some of you heard me tell this story, uh, but last fall, I was in a Red Buffalo coffee shop, and a guy came up to me in dreads, and he said, he goes, dude, thanks for talking about the healing of the nations. And um, I won't ever forget this story. It's going to be with me forever, I hope. And, um, and I said, when did you hear me talk about the healing of the nations? Man, we were out in the amphitheater. Don't you remember? Well, I do remember because only once last year did I mention it is in Revelation 22 that once we get into the New Jerusalem, the tree of life is there and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. So I just mentioned it casually at the amphitheater. I said, you were there for that. And he said, yeah. He goes, "Uh, I have a question for you, man. Could that be cannabis? (laughs) That's what I did. Greek didn't help me at all. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and he said, I think it's cannabis. I said, well, we'll find out one day. The world is changing around us. It's changing. To make you nervous, you're not alone. In fact, I would suggest that this is a repeated concern throughout the history of the world. The people that pay the price for the leaders of their country are always a little anxious as things change and new leaders come into power. The question is why? We'll come back to that. Today we're starting a new series called The Servant King, Study in Mark. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at Mark. Mark opens his gospel with a very simple message, wake up. Wake up. Do not be deceived. Be alert, open your eyes, pay attention to the world around you. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. That's wake up. The time is here. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. Now, when we think of the word repent as good Christians, we often think of repenting from sin. But what if this is a much bigger picture? What if this is wake up, repent, change your mind about what you see in your world around you? The kingdom of God is here. It's not some ethereal, in the sky, mysterious thing. The kingdom of God is here. When Jesus stepped onto the earth, he brought the kingdom with him. Wake up. Wake up. That's the beginning of Mark. In this series, we're going to take a look at some things that are intention. We're going to look at what it means to have authority, but at the same time be a slave. Both of those things. You know, uh, when the Bible was written, they didn't have the concept of a servant that came later on. They really only had a concept of free man and slave. It's really all they had. And so whenever you see the word servant or serve, think of the word slave or slavery. That's the way, it's, that's the way it should be pictured. So what we have here is a tension between how on earth do we exercise authority and serve at the same time. 
And the only way to answer that question is to take a look at Jesus. Because how could Jesus be a king, the king, the creator king of all, and be a slave, the suffering servant of the Lord? How could he do both at the same time? That's an oxymoron. It doesn't work in our world. In other words, it's an otherworldly idea. It doesn't work in our world. But first, some background information about Mark to help us start this journey for the next 10 weeks. Several points that will help us kind of grasp this wonderful little book. First of all, for much of the history of the church, Mark has been seen as uh, an artless, a simple gospel. And if you read it compared to Matthew and Luke, it appears that way. There's many reasons why Christians down through the ages have thought that. For example, about 96% of Mark is found in either Matthew or Luke. In fact, there's only three short stories in Mark that aren't in Matthew and Luke. Well, if that's the case, then why just not read Matthew and Luke and forget Mark? It's kind of what the church has done. Mark has been seen as an abridgment of Matthew and therefore inferior to Matthew. Um, this sentiment was captured well by Augustine. This is a quote from Augustine. Mark imitated Matthew like a lackey and is regarded as his abbreviator. So Mark is been placed second position it's inferior and we rarely study mark in fact after the first service i came up and several people came up to me and said i've never studied mark several people come up and said, i've never even read it so as a result the christian church our history has derived its picture developed this picture of jesus primarily from matthew largely ignoring mark however about 100 years ago opinions began to shift People begin to think differently because scholars begin to study more seriously the relationship of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, um, their relationship to each other. What if Mark is not inferior but represents a different perspective? What if it's not inferior? You know, when you're in a courtroom situation and you call four witnesses, if they all have the exact same story, what's your first thought? collusion, right? So the truth or the veracity of their story is found in the fact that they don't always agree. They have different perspectives of what happened. So what if Mark is actually presenting a different perspective? What if Mark was the earliest gospel? If he was the very first gospel to be written of the four, what would we learn that's unique? Those of you that uh, were here for Good Friday service, uh, one of the things Mark did, which is just wonderful, was he took four different people from our church, and they, they presented a five to eight minute little sermonette on what each of the different gospels presented, the uniquenesses presented about the death and crucifixion of Christ. So Luke, for instance, emphasizes the women. Matthew doesn't. Matthew emphasizes something very different. So when you see that, then, then if we look at Mark and say, if all we had was Mark, let's look at Mark and see what he presents about the story, I think we have some very interesting things uh, to learn. My own personal view, this is the view of most of scholarship in the Christian world today, is that Mark was written first and had a major influence on both Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke had access to Mark when they wrote. 96% of Mark is, re is reproduced in these other books. And so what's unique about Mark? If we take a look carefully at Mark, we're going to find that not only is he a skilled theologian, but he is an artist. There's no question about it. He's an artist, how he presents things. You know, the early church regularly used the term gospel 
in the singular, not plural, not gospels. We think of the four gospels. They didn't think that way. They thought of the concept of a gospel, namely one. There was a unity with four different versions. That's how they conceived of it. One gospel. They called it the gospel tradition. The gospel tradition. What does Mark say about it? What does Matthew say? What does Luke say? Let's take a look and see. So we have one gospel. I think it's important to see what Mark is emphasizing in his presentation of the gospel message about Jesus. We have uh, another point, just a background to help us make sense of it. We have a variety of testimonies and clues from the early church that Mark became Peter's interpreter, if you will. And though he wrote accurately what Peter taught him and what he heard Peter teaching and preaching, um, Peter was probably, we believe, was in Rome composing the gospel, writing or teaching his remembrance of what happened with Jesus, and he probably commissioned Mark to write it down. So if that's true, then the gospel of Mark becomes a record of Peter's memoirs regarding Jesus. This is important. For example, in Mark... Uh, 16 chapters, the first eight and the second eight. First eight deal with the life of Christ. Second eight deal with Holy Week, the passion of Christ. You remember how important it was to Peter, the passion of Christ. He's the one that betrayed him. He was the only one standing there left to betray Jesus. He did. He was the only one there, but he still betrayed him. It was important. And so he devotes a whole 50%, Mark does, of the teachings of Peter to the, the passion of Christ. Mark has uh, numerous characteristics when we get in here of an eyewitness account, yet he wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. Where did that come from? Probably came from Peter. So what we have then is Mark's recording of Peter's memories and teachings about Jesus, but he does it in a very accurate way. This was the unanimous agreement of the early church. No early church tradition or no early church father ascribed the gospel to anyone other than Mark. What we have here. I believe, is the earliest recording of the life of Christ in Mark. And it's usually relegated to the back shelf. So we wanted to spend time in this first gospel to see what's the first thing revealed about our Messiah. If Mark records Peter's memoirs, then we would expect to find complementary teachings in First and Second Peter, would we? Wouldn't we? I think Mark, again, following Peter's teachings, he records the gospel, the good news about Jesus the Messiah. He focuses on the life of Christ. Peter, on the other hand, begins to fill in the backstory with the theology to help us as a church make sense of what Christ did. So all the way through our 10 weeks together, while we're in Mark, we're going to stop momentarily and glimpse something in First or Second Peter to help you uh, connect the dots and put the back, fill the backstory in. Okay, so what are some of the uniquenesses of Mark? There are many. I'll admit to you, there are many, but I'm only going to focus on two for this series. One is that Jesus is presented as the Son of God. This is a key to understanding the book. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Then you go to Mark chapter 15 at the end of his story. Uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 39. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he had died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So Mark opens and closes his account of Jesus with the titles son of God. 
that becomes very important. You know, the demons, all throughout the story, as Mark unfolds, they also recognize Jesus' divine authority. They get it. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, uh, a man, verse 23, there was a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit, and he cried out, this is the evil spirit talking, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out. And he did. So the story, as the gospel unfolds, highlights that even the demons recognized who he is. They recognized Jesus' divine authority. He is the king. So point number one is that he's the son of God. He is the king, the creator king that makes everything and has authority over all the earth and everything in it, all of creation. But yet Mark's not done there because as Jesus lives out that sonship, he does it in the midst of a broken world. That's our world, isn't it? It's a very broken world. As I've said, do not be deceived by what you see. Do not be deceived. It is a broken world. The surprise in Mark is that the sonship comes through in the form of suffering. That's the surprise. Mark presents Jesus primarily according to the model of Isaiah 53. We call the suffering servant of Isaiah, the suffering slave. That's a paradox. How could you be king of the universe and be a slave? No king has ever been a slave. No slave is ever a king. And yet that's what Jesus, I mean, that's what Mark presents Jesus as. We have Jesus presented by Mark in these two contrasting but very significant ways. He is the son of God and king of all creation. He is the servant of the Lord, the slave of all. Hence the title, The Servant King. It's a paradox. If Mark's gospel is the first gospel, then the very first thing we learn about Jesus is wake up. Come out of your stupor. Be alert. Be sober. Understand the times and the world in which you live. Understand the world around you. That's the very first message we get about Jesus, if Mark is the first one. Okay, let me say a word about the storyline of Mark, because this becomes very important. The Jews, during Jesus' time, they believed in a revolution of sorts, if you will. Now, remember, Israel, during this time of Jesus, was occupied by the Roman Empire, had Roman soldiers all around, uh, that uh, they were in charge of the land. Uh, and the Jews understood that that was a, a reflection of Deuteronomy, the curse that if you rebel against me and you disobey me, I'm going to deport you and other people who you can't understand their language and uh, will come in and take control of you. And that's what happened. They've been brought back, rebuilt the temple, but they're still under domination. So they're, they're aware that, uh, that they're still, in a sense, in exile. And so they, don't, they, want, to, uh, they want to eliminate that oppression. They want to see God's blessing. So they were looking for a Messiah who would come to restore Israel's glory. They had heard about it under King David when Israel was the uh, top nation in the world and uh, all of the, the, the wealth and all of that. They had heard about that. It's in the story of the Old Testament. And they knew the Messiah would come to restore that glory. He would come with mighty power, military strength, and break the power of the Romans. He would restore Israel to its good fortunes and its prosperity that they'd experienced in previous times. This is what they were looking for. He would cleanse the land of paganism, 
I mean, the fact that they were occupied by the Romans means that the land was unclean. He would cleanse the land of all that. He would establish Israel once again as the top nation. That was their perspective. They're looking for a revolution. The problem is that this thinking was a complete and total betrayal of God's purposes for Israel in the first place. That's the problem. Israel had been called to be the light of the world. Remember, here's God, and he creates a kaleidoscope of nations, and he chooses one, Israel, to reach the rest. That was their purpose. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.8 that God preached the gospel, the good news. You want a very succinct statement of the gospel? Here it is. He preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham that in you all the nations would be blessed. That's the gospel. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is that God desires every nation to worship him and come to recognize him as the one true God. That is the gospel. It's very simple. How he did it was through the cross. That's the method. But the good news is that God loves every person on this planet and is doing whatever is necessary to get their attention because he wants them all to turn to him. He wants to reach all the nations of the earth. He's the one that made this earth. He made us. That's the gospel. This dilemma is captured in Mark uh, chapter 10. It's kind of a funny story. Every time I read it, I chuckle. This dilemma in nationalistic uh, aspirations. Isn't that what we want, by the way? Don't we want a president that's going to unify our nation and restore us back to, you fill in the blank, whatever good is? Everybody has a different perspective on what that looks like. But isn't that what we want? And We have national aspirations. They did too. And Jesus gave them a paradox instead, something very different. John chapter 10, we see this tension this dilemma captured in the story of James and John. John chapter, uh, Mark chapter 10, not John, Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Man, I just love that. I just love it. I've said that in prayers. God says, make my request known to the Lord. Sometimes I say it to the Lord. No lie. God, I really want this. Give it to me. Now, you may be laughing at me, but let me figure that out on my own. Because I really want it. <laughs> That's what they did. Give us what we want. Do it for us, whatever we ask. Well, Jesus said, okay, what is it you want me to do for you? They replied, <laughs> let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Glory is a key word. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. So we want to sit at your left and your right as you come into your kingdom. You're the Messiah. You're going to establish a kingdom. You're going to return. You're going to kick all these Romans out. We're going to be a great nation. Let us sit on your left and your right. I love it. Isn't it great? They're just like you guys, by the way. We want the glory. We want what's best. Isn't that the way we're all wired? Here's what Jesus said. You don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? They, they said, we can. We're ready. Let's go. <laughs> Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, 
<laughs> they became indignant with James. I bet. Whoa, who died and left you guys, God? You want the best seats? What about us? You know? I mean, you could see this little division occurring, the argumentation. They were indignant. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who were guarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Okay, now reflect on this because this describes our world. This describes the broken world from the beginning of time. And this is us today. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and high officials exercise authority over them. Have you ever seen a TSA guard? I shouldn't have said that. Not out loud. Okay? The high officials exercise authority over them. They lord it over them. This is our world. Not so with you. You want to understand what it means to be a disciple? Here it is. We have a phrase that to follow Christ is very costly. Here it is right here. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, whoever wants to become great must become a slave. That's a paradox. Nothing in our world makes sense of this. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Can't find this anywhere. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to be a slave, and to give his life as a ransom for many, to die. You want to be a disciple of Christ? There it is right there. Got to pay a price. So James and John are envisioning Jesus' kingdom precisely in terms of power and authority, and they want to share in that glory. Jesus begins to correct their thinking by giving them a paradox. True power and authority is very different than what you imagine it to be. Now, later on, when Jesus comes into his glory, this is in chapter 15, um, he's at the cross, verse 25. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Verse 26, the written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. Mark wants it known that he's, he has the king of the Jews written on the cross. This is his moment of entering his glory. This is establishing the kingdom right here. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. James and John were nowhere to be seen. This is Jesus coming into his glory right here as the king. And two criminals are on the left and right. And James and John, they're gone. The truth about the kingdom of Jesus is that it involves becoming a slave. You want to exercise true power and authority? (coughs) Become a slave. There is no more powerful way to exercise authority than to love someone else. None. None whatsoever in the world. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. (coughs) Not if you have the right doctrine, not if you have the right teaching, not if you have the biggest church, smallest church, prettiest church, ugliest church. No, it's if you have love for one another. That's the paradox. This is what it means to demonstrate love, to demonstrate power and authority. This is a storyline of Mark. 
Okay, I'd like to close. I just want to read to you something out of 1 Peter. I told you we expect to find some complimentary or some of the backstory with Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. We are foreigners. We're foreigners not because this place is not our home. This actually is our home. This is where we'll end up, the new earth. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. But what we're not prepared for is the evil, broken structures that we have to live under. That's what makes us foreigners. That's all going to change. We're to live as foreigners in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. You weren't redeemed with silver or gold. Do not be deceived. I don't care how much money you have. Do not be deceived. That's passing. It's a passing glory. Be a grateful people. That's good. But do not be deceived. That is not a sign of God's blessing. That's not what redeemed you. You were instead redeemed with the precious precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. defect. We're going to see this later on in Mark, by the way. Suffering servant of Isaiah, the lamb. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. We return to the word glory. We're capturing a picture of what God did. You understand? It's a paradox. You don't find this anywhere in the world. The true king was glorified through death and resurrection. You don't find that anywhere. King is not a slave, and a slave is not a king, except in our faith. And so, your faith and your hope are in God. There's nothing like this in the world. That's why I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Nothing is like this anywhere in any other teaching. Now, what's our response? Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, now that that's happened, here it is. Love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. That is the call to discipleship. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. That's the paradox. You want to experience the glory? You can love people. You want to experience greatness? Then become a slave. Be the lowest of all. Mark is the first one to tell us that. So are you afraid and desperately looking for a political savior who will restore our national glory? Or are you looking forward to the true servant king who will lead us to change the world? You can look back. I want to get back to where we were. Or you can look forward and say, as Christians, we want to change the world. Because that's what the servant king does. He changes the world. Are you focused on political and economic stability? Or desiring to be true agents of healing in a broken county? I don't want you to feel guilty about your, the way God has blessed you. Celebrate it. I admit to you, I'm in the top 1% of wealthy people in the entire world. I've been to places where they live, third world countries, where they have nothing. Don't feel guilty. Live with the tension. Just recognize it's a blessing from the Lord. And do not place your hope in it because it's fading away. So do you want to focus on political and economic stability or do you want to be true agents of healing? That's the choice presented before us that Mark's going to present. 
Do you want to live as citizens of the servant king? Do you want to live like James and John? Let us come and be in your glory when, we, when you come into your kingdom. We want the best. Or are we going to be like Peter after we betray him, which we all have? We humble ourselves and turn around and say, Lord, use me. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for knowing our own brokenness and knowing what to do about it, because I sure don't. Thank you for uh, sending your son. Thank you for um, creating this paradox, Lord. I, I don't know if there's any other way you could do it. You could have done it with the structures that we have in place. Um, help us to learn what it means to live as slaves and show love to people and bring about true change and redemption. In your son's name we pray. Amen. We're going to ask you in just a moment to... Uh, to give to an offering. And we're going to ask you to um, do communion. I want to give you just a few moments first to reflect because we're asking for two responses. Paul says when you give, that's a reflection of the gospel. And when you celebrate communion, that's a reflection of the gospel. And so we're going to ask that. I want you to pause and think about what the Lord has done. Don't just put money in. Don't do that. Stop and say, God, thank you that I have the ability to do this. So normally we have you reflect before communion. I want you to reflect now on a true servant king, a king who is a slave for us. Take a moment and reflect.